The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Leveraging FCRN Modulation in Personalized Management of Generalized Myasthenia Gravis, Applying the Evidence, Tools, and Patient Perspectives to Achieve Treatment Goals. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerreview.com forward slash EZC860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, I'm Dr. Vera Brill from the University of Toronto. Welcome to this educational activity on myasthenia gravis. Joining me in this discussion are Professor Francisco Saka from University Federico II in Naples, Italy, and Ms. Amy Clark from Optum Infusion Pharmacy. You will also be hearing some insights from Kate, a patient, about her lived experiences with myasthenia gravis. And now I will turn you over to Professor Saka, who will start us with a brief review of the basics of myasthenia gravis, and this will lead into a discussion of the full impact of the condition on patients' lives. Professor Saka. Thank you, Dr. Brill. Uh, it is a real pleasure to talk about myasthenia gravis and on the impact of this disease on patients' lives. So myasthenia gravis is an autoimmune neuromuscular disease. And the diagnosis is frequently made uh, after symptoms that are reported by patients, motor symptoms, and by the presence of autoantibodies that are measured uh, through specific serological tests. Uh, these antibodies are antibodies that bind to the neuromuscular junction at the postsynaptic level. Uh, there are basically three different antibodies that have been identified and that are measured in clinical practice. The most frequent one is our antibodies against the acetylcholine receptor. Acetylcholine receptor binds acetylcholine, which is released at the presynaptic level, and activates muscle contraction. So the presence of autoantibodies have three distinct effects on this, new, this transmission through the neuromuscular junction. One is that the binding with acetylcholine and the receptor itself is inhibited. Another pathological mechanism is that through cross-linking of two different receptors from one autoantibody, the receptor itself is internalized and acetylcholine cannot find the receptor on the postsynaptic level. A third mechanism is that the presence of this autoantibody activates complement, resulting in the destruction of the neuromuscular junction. There are other two proteins uh, that you can see here in this figure, MUSK and LRP4. These are structural proteins of the neuromuscular junction. And autoantibodies have been identified directed towards these two proteins as well. The annual incidence of myasthenia gravis globally is approximately 8 to 10 cases per million people living in that area. And the prevalence, which is also very difficult to assess because of the rarity of the disease and the way we record patients worldwide, is estimated to be between 150 and 250 cases per million. In some cases, even a higher incidence of 300 per million is also reported. This makes the total prevalence of the disease, for instance, in a country like the United States, approximately of 75,000 people living with myasthenia gravis. 
The symptoms of the disease, as you can see here, are quite uh, different in very various districts of the body. They go from ocular symptoms, bulbar symptoms, facial and muscular symptoms, respiratory and limb muscle weakness. 70% of our patients experience generalized symptoms of the disease and 80% of the entire population experience ocular symptoms, making them one of the first symptoms at the onset of the disease. Core manifestations of the disease include uh, fatigability in muscles uh, and that are typically worsened by exertion and improved by rest. Also, symptoms may fluctuate during the day, having worse symptoms at night or after exercising as compared to the morning. But still, there are very frequent fluctuations of the disease during the day. As we said before, the most common presenting symptom is ocular. It could be either double vision or ptosis, and up to 80% of patients have with ocular symptoms then develop a generalized form of myasthenia gravis, usually within two years of onset. Bulbar muscle involvement is also very frequent and we could also say very dangerous because it may cause dysarthria, dysphagia, and weakness in uh, facial muscles and jaw muscles. Limb muscle weakness is usually symmetric and proximal, but also different forms with asymmetrical involvement are possible. And 10, 15 to 20% of patients with positive antibodies against the acetylcholine receptor can develop respiratory weakness requiring mechanical ventilation and admission to the emergency room. There are different myasthenia gravis subtypes based on the antibodies that are found in every single patient. And the vast majority of patients, between 80 and 85%, as reported in different studies, may have positive antibodies against the acetylcholine receptor. These patients may present at onset with a thymoma or a famous hyperplasia. And a minority of patients uh, are found, um, depending on the study, between 7 to 10% with positive anti-musk antibodies. And uh, if you consider the patients that are seronegative to anti-acetylcholine receptor antibodies, these represent up to 40% of the remaining patients. Other patients uh, present with anti-LRP4 antibodies and another minority of patients are negative to all three. So if all three antibodies have been tested, we call them triple seronegatives. If anti-LRP4 have not been tested, we usually call these patients as double seronegatives. So what is the impact of the disease based on patients' perspectives? Because up to now, we have basically seen what is the physician's perspective based on motor symptoms that we can detect uh, quite easily in patients. But uh, in this study that you see presented here on 28 individuals with generalized myasthenia gravis, an average of 16 symptoms per person have been reported. And the most frequently reported symptoms are eyelid drooping and physical fatigue. I would like to spend a couple of words on physical fatigue because fatigue is a very difficult symptom to identify and it may be 
uh, the onset symptom in many patients. And fatigue, since fatigue is not directly linked to myasthenia gravis, it is one of those symptoms that lead to a misdiagnosis and very frequently to a uh, psychiatric interpretation of the disease. Uh, most bothersome symptoms on the patient's side are blurry or double vision, breathing difficulty, fatigue again, and swallowing problems. Here we see the impact of these symptoms on the patient's perspective, from the patient's perspective. And I would like to focus on the percentage of emotional impact, which is almost 100% physical impact. And within the physical impact, uh, the impact on activities of daily living, instrumental activities of daily living, and hobbies and sports. But what is more surprising is the impact of this on work, on career, and on financial constraints, which is almost 100%, meaning that many patients have, uh, where, meaning that in many patients, physical impact translates into reduced work abilities, into reduced advance in their career and financial worries. It also impacts sleep in up to almost 90% of patients. And in dark blue, we see the social impact of the disease, which is very interesting because it is not that frequently, it is frequently underestimated and not uh, checked during normal consultation. So what is the feeling of patients uh, of being understood or misunderstood in their daily life? Very frequently, they report not being understood because sometimes the disease is not well known, I would say very frequently, or even because they are not understood in the way they can schedule appointments, they can make life decisions, and it is also very difficult for patients to date or to have partners. Now, is there another way to measure the impact of the disease on patients? Uh, what you see here is the result of the so-called My Real World MG study. This study was based on an app that was distributed through a classic uh, smartphone uh, app uh, download sites and it was uh, downloaded in these countries that you see here us canada uk spain germany italy and japan and patients themselves uh, enter data regarding their demographics the diagnosis past treatments the mgadl quality of life scales like the eq5d or the mg quality of life 15r and also symptoms on anxiety and depression this figure here is the result of the MG quality of life 15R. I would like you to focus on one aspect, which is what was the most Im impacted domain of the 15 that are um, tested through the scale. And it is the first one. It is planning limitation. If you go down to the what is was least impacted, uh, you can see that there are several motor symptoms, meaning that motor symptoms impact on a patient's daily life. But what impacts most is planning limitation. When you ask patients, why is planning so difficult when you have myasthenia gravis, very frequently their answer will be that it is an unpredictable disease, meaning that it fluctuates very often. And having a fluctuating disease means that it is difficult to plan. It is difficult to plan an appointment, 
to, it could be a social appointment. It could be with your partner. It could be uh, uh, related to your work, to whatever. But meaning that fluctuations are what bothers patients the most. Of course, you know, motor symptoms are a problem for patients. But having this unpredictability and these fluctuations is something that we should focus on when we decide how to treat patients in the best possible way. In the same study, we then focused on what is the relationship between myasthenia gravis and productivity losses. 40% of participants to this uh, observational study reported taking a sick day in the past month. And one third of all patients reported needing help from caregivers. And there is a relationship uh, direct relationship between the need for sick leave and the increase in the MGADL score, which is a patient-reported outcome of the disease. And up to one-fifth of all caregivers in this survey here had to give up unpaid employment, meaning that the impact of the disease is uh, very strong. It's not just the patients, it's their families, it's their caregivers that in very frequently especially for those patients with a very complicated disease, have to give up their paid uh, employment. Now, even when treated, myasthenia gravis can remain burdensome. This is a, uh, um, a study exploring uh, a 10-year interval of patients, 78 patients with myasthenia gravis, and 42 of them went into remission at baseline in 45 after 10 years. Nevertheless, the proportion of patients with depression and anxiety did not change over time. And clinical scales that usually measure depression, like the Hamilton Depression and Anxiety Rating Scale, even worsen in time. This means that even if on the physician side, we cure MG, even if the motor symptoms disappear, even if they go in remission, this really doesn't mean that patients have a high quality of life or that they are happy with the treatment and living with myasthenia gravis on a daily basis. Now we'll hear from an individual patient's perspective on living with myasthenia gravis. I don't think that either myself or my family recognized that it was symptoms of something more serious because of my age. Uh, so I was a pediatric diagnosis as a patient. And so a lot of the things I was experiencing were easily explainable um, because I was transitioning from grade school age to middle school. Things like growing pains are normal. Being tired is normal at that time as you start to enter the puberty age. Um, transitions are difficult for young kids. I was having vision problems. Again, that's like a norm, very normal time for kids to start to develop some of those issues. So a lot of the things I was experiencing were not severe enough for me to impact my daily life leading up like gradually during that time. Um, and it it, so it took about a full year of like gradually adding on these symptoms to start to realize that something more serious was going on. Um, and for me, that really started when um, blurry vision started becoming double vision. And I really, my glasses weren't helping anymore with that. 
I was struggling to carry my books in between classes. I had just started middle school, so I was starting the changing classes routine and needing to go to a locker between classes. And I had many more textbooks than I normally had, and they were too heavy for me to carry. And I started falling down a lot. And um, I started losing weight. It was becoming difficult for me to chew and swallow food. I was a very active child before my diagnosis. I played soccer. I was in um, dance classes and art classes and music classes. And I had to give basically all of that up because I was too sick to do those activities anymore. So during that time, I was homeschooled for two years. Um, and then I did return to school, public school later on, on a modified schedule um, through like a 504 plan and um, just having accommodations to be able to finish my schooling. I've gotten better at knowing myself and setting the boundaries for myself to be able to account for those fluctuations in symptoms and the unpredictability, but um, it hasn't changed that that's the nature of the disease even when I am fairly well managed. MG has impacted quality of life in a number of ways that are hard to sometimes rate on a scale, for example. Um, it's something that I think is difficult for patients to explain to others who have not lived the same experience. And even between patients, their experiences are vastly different. Um, I would say I, I lead a very full life. I work, I have children, I have hobbies, I have a spouse, I am close with family, I have great friends. And still, my life looks very different than probably the life that my parents imagined for me when they started their family, when they imagined what it was like, what it would be like to raise a child and have that child um, grow into an adult. When we're talking about the impact of MG on quality of life, I think it can be very easy to look at it in terms of, is this treatment working or not? Do you have these specific symptoms or not? And that, you know, that is how we measure what your, what your quality of life is like. And I don't think that always paints the most accurate picture. For example, I would consider myself a very well-managed patient in terms of what my daily symptoms are like, in terms of the variability of my symptoms. I have learned how to manage them very well, and I lead a very full life that comes with great sacrifice to lead to the level that I'm at right now. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, for example, I work full time, but I don't drive <laughs> uh, because driving really exhausts my eyes. I have a lot of ocular symptoms. And so to be able to work remotely all day from the computer, which is also very tiring to my eyes, something else has to give. Every patient's story is a little bit different but they all speak to the need for individually optimized treatment. Now, I'll turn you over to Dr. Brill, who will address traditional and novel treatment options for myasthenia gravis. Thank you. So I will first start by talking about conventional approaches to myasthenia gravis management. These are our classical um, approaches. We try to control symptoms. Uh, we try to ameliorate the immune uh, reaction by doing a thymectomy 
in those younger patients with generalized acetylcholine receptor positive myasthenia. We use corticosteroids, and we also use other therapies that uh, lower the level of steroids necessary, um, other um, non-steroidal immunosuppressants. Acetylcholinesterase inhibitors help control symptoms. They work in many patients, and we use uh, pyridostigmine in doses of 30 to 60 milligrams several times a day, four or five, six times a day, or the extended release form. Um, the adverse effects are very well known uh, and are shown as diarrhea, vomiting, abdominal pain, cramping. So there are uh, problems with using pyridostigmine. Beyond that, they don't work for everybody. Thymectomy um, is removal of the thymus gland, which is where we think the abnormal immune response in myasthenia gravis originates. Here's the thymus, and uh, this is removed uh, by thoracic surgeons and uh, helps improve uh, myasthenia gravis control, as shown in the thymectomy trial that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine not long ago. And finally, steroids. Steroids are a highly effective form of treatment for myasthenia gravis. Um, often they start at one milligram per kilogram daily of prednisone or the equivalent. Uh, they may be capped at 60 milligrams a day, but if a patient is in crisis in the ICU, the dose will be higher. But with chronic use of steroids, there are multiple side effects and only a few are shown to the right Weight gain is almost is seen in 80% or more of patients. And then this list of side effects um, are just highly distressing um, and must be managed by their family doctor. The steroid sparing therapies, uh, the non-steroidal immunosuppressant drugs, include azathioprine, uh, which is used very frequently. Uh, mycophenolate mofetil, which is used very frequently, cyclosporin, a little less now, tacrolimus, methotrexate, and cyclophosphamide really is used very rarely in most places in the world, except perhaps places that can't afford uh, the uh, more expensive newer therapies. Intravenous infusions are intravenous immunoglobulin that can help control the symptoms uh, fairly rapidly, and rituximab that works in three or four months after the infusions and is a B-cell depleting therapy. So some of the characteristics, um, azathioprine inhibits the proliferation of B and T cells. The dose is shown there. But patients have to be monitored for potential bone marrow suppression, hepatotoxicity, and they may also have GI toxicity. Some people, about 10%, just don't tolerate the drug at all, and they have a flu-like reaction, and you have to stop it. IVIG works in multiple ways, broad immunomodulatory effects. The loading dose acutely is 2 grams per kilogram, it can be divided over two days or up to five days, depending on the status of the patient. And then the maintenance dose is uh, 0.5 uh, grams per kilo daily for two days or one gram per kilo in a single day. And the various potential side effects are shown here, hypersensitivity, 
uh, renal dysfunction with the earlier preparations, thromboembolic events, which is still under debate, hemolytic anemia, which uh, uh, may occur, infusion site reactions, and headaches. Mycophenolate mofetil inhibits proliferation of BMT cells and uh, goes up to 1.5 grams twice daily, but again has uh, these side effects and possible teratogenicity with a higher risk of lymphoma compared to those patients who do not take it. So the newer immunotherapies are based on the mechanisms of action that you heard from Professor Saka. They are directed therapies and include complement inhibitors and FCRN antagonists, recept FCRN uh, uh, antagonists. So as you've heard from uh, Professor Saka, one of the actions of um, the abnormal acetylcholine receptor antibody is formation uh, of the MAC complex through activation of the complement cascade. Um, and this is shown here where you have the abnormal acetylcholine receptor antibody that activates the complement cascade leading to MAC formation. Membrane attack complex or MAC uh, destroys the postsynaptic membrane, smooths it out, and you get the appearance as shown on the right side where you get uh, dispersion and loss of the acetylcholine receptors and smoothing of the membrane, and these interfere with neuromuscular transmission. So the complement inhibitors that we have, echolizumab is the first that was approved for refractory myasthenia gravis in 2017, approved by the FDA and approved elsewhere in the world. And it uh, binds to uh, complement C5 and therefore prevents its splitting and then the cascade into MAC. This is provided as an intravenous infusion, and the schedule is shown here. One of the issues with complement inhibitors uh, is that um, they uh, increase the risk of infection with Neisseria meningitides, so it is important to be vaccinated against this possibility before starting the drug. And if you have to start the drug very quickly, then uh, you have to give two weeks of antibiotics with the treatment to avoid the risk of meningitis uh, and uh, possible adverse effects of that nature. Again, infusion reactions and headache and GI toxicity have been seen with echolizumab. Xylucoplan, um, was submitted to the FDA in uh, 2022. The decision will come out this year. It's a peptide that uh, binds to uh, protein, complement protein C5 and 5B, and then prevents MAC. It's given subcutaneously and has injection site reactions. Ravulizumab, also uh, approved by the FDA in 2022, um, is a, an antibody that binds to Protein C5 prevents the formation of MAC, um, and it has a half-life extension uh, technology. It's uh, infusion IV, but it only needs to be given every eight weeks compared to echolizumab that had to be given every two weeks. The same risk of Neisseria meningitis infection. So these are the three complement inhibitors that uh, are um, uh, uh, the two are available, echolizumab and ravulizumab, made by the same company, Xylucoplan, 
um, is uh, pending approval. Now, what about FC receptor inhibitors? The FC receptor binds to immunoglobulins that are taken up by the uh, cell uh, by pinocytosis. And by binding to the FC receptor, these immunoglobulins are returned to the surface and released into the circulation. If an immunoglobulin molecule does not bind to the FC receptor, then it is taken up and degraded in a lysosome. So if you block the FC receptor uh, with an inhibitor, as shown here, the immunoglobulins cannot be taken up by the FC receptor, and therefore they are not recirculated uh, or taken up to the cell surface and released into the circulation again. And therefore, uh, the immunoglobulins are unbound and then degraded in greater amounts in the lysosomes. So the levels of IgGs uh, decrease. Uh, it's a specific effect for IgGs. Let me just mention that complement inhibitors that Ig4 musk antibody positive myasthenia does not uh, um, activate complement, and therefore complement inhibitors are not indicated in musk positive patients. The FC receptor inhibitors work on all the IgG subclasses and do work on musk as well as on acetylcholine receptor IgGs. So that um, uh, this is the mechanism uh, that is applicable to more classes of mycenia gravis, more types. So FCR uh, recycles IgG, extends its half-life by four times, uh, compared to the immunoglobulins that aren't recycled. Um, FC receptor inhibitor therapy is also known as chemical plasma exchange because plasma exchange and immunoabsorption remove autoantibodies and are effective in MG uh, management. These treatments are not widely available, um, but they show the benefit of lowering the IgGs and um, the amount of lowering by FC receptor inhibitors is very similar to the amount of lowering that happens after plasma exchanges. And the um, FCRN re, uh, inhibitors, they target the IgG autoantibodies that are central in the pathophysiology of myasthenia gravis and have much more selectivity than the existing conventional therapies such as corticosteroids. So, Fgartigamod is the first in class for FCRN antagonists. It was approved by the FDA for clinical use in December 2021, and it was indicated uh, for those with generalized myasthenia uh, who were acetylcholine receptor antibody positive. Uh, it's a fragment, it's not a full antibody, but it blocks FCRN, uh, the FC receptor. It's given by IV infusion, uh, weekly for four weeks at 10 milligrams per kilogram, and subsequent treatment cycles after the first four weeks depend on how long the efficacy lasts, and it produces headache. Um, there were, The approval was based on the results of a phase three randomized double-blind placebo-controlled multicenter trial that included patients with generalized myasthenia gravis, uh, who were class two to four, as you know, class five uh, is, uh, well, there were very few four. They were mainly two and three. They had to have an 
ADL score of five or more, and they had to be on stable doses of standard of care treatment. So this was additive to existing treatment. Uh, If there was active viral infection uh, of hepatitis uh, B or C or HIV, they were excluded. And if they had concurrent infections or medications that were increasing muscle weakness, they were uh, excluded. And it was a placebo-controlled trial on a one-to-one randomization. And the outcome measures were those who responded on uh, the ADL score, the primary, by at least two points, um, maintained consistently for at least four weeks. And the results showed that 68% of acetylcholinoceptor positive patients on Fgartigamod improved in the first cycle compared to placebo at 29.7%. And in further treatment cycles, the percent of responders increased to 78%. And here you see uh, the change in the IgG and uh, um, with from baseline uh, in those on um, Fgartigamod you get a rapid drop-off that starts within the first week but continues to the fourth week, and then a steady return uh, up to baseline. Um, So this is, and then, so uh, this is the total IgG uh, shown in green uh, with the placebo here and the Fgartigamod here, and then the changes in acetylcholinoceptor antibodies Uh, With Fgartigamod, you see the drop-off that mirrors the drop in IgG, whereas with placebo, you see the blue line here that they don't uh, reduce. So if you look at the uh, ADL responders, which I've mentioned, you see them here again. This was the primary, so uh, 67.7 to this was just under uh, 30. Um, And those who responded, uh, 84% responded within the first two weeks of uh, the four-week treatment cycle. But also, um, this is a patient-reported outcome, the activities of daily living, whereas a quantitative myasthenia gravis score, which is more a physician assessment score and considered more objective, also showed significant improvement with 63% responding on Fgartigamod versus 14% on placebo. And this was defined as a three-point improvement for at least four consecutive weeks during the first cycle. So this this was uh, a secondary, but this helped uh, validate the results in the minds of many um, uh, treaters of myasthenia. And then uh, how long does the effect of Fgartigamod last on the ADL? You'd think it might be the same, but it was highly variable. So a small percentage Uh, The effect lasted uh, up to six weeks. This was 1.4%. Six to eight weeks in about a third, eight to 12 weeks in um, about a fifth, and more than 12 weeks in 34%. So the benefits of this FC receptor inhibitor can vary highly uh, from patient to patient. And also in the open label study, we know that the intervals are not static for any given patient. And if we look at multiple treatment cycles, up to five here, we can see the sustained benefit that if you treat them uh, the first time, uh, the first line, the second, the third, you get the same kind of response 
a rapid drop-off in uh, ADL, which means improvement with a gradual return to baseline, and the quantitative myasthenia gravis score, uh, a rapid drop-off, meaning improvement, and then a return towards baseline. So the effect is reproducible with FC receptor inhibitors. The double-blind study was followed by a three-year open-label extension study. 91% of those who finished ADAPT entered this study, and the clinical improvements uh, mirrored the maximal reductions in total IgG and acetylcholine receptors. The long-term treatment was well-tolerated and effective, and uh, no new safety signals emerged even before a vaccine for COVID-19 became available and when COVID was raging through the population. So the uh, AE adverse event rates were similar in those who went from Fgartigamod to Fgartigamod and those who went from placebo to Fgartigamod. The most common effects were headache, nasopharyngitis, diarrhea, and these were mild to moderate uh, changes. And then if we look at what is the number of cycles that patients need uh, to remain well, so this is um, a symptom-driven treatment, meaning that as you worsen, you, you benefit, and then as you worsen, the treatment is uh, repeated, and it's done in cycles of uh, weekly infusions for four weeks. And this shows you the distribution of the number of uh cycles that a patient received per year, uh, a few had up to seven cycles per year, but um, um, half the patients received uh, about five and a half cycles per year. So this is the number of cycles. Uh, a very few received only one cycle a year and remained well. It, it, this is the challenge of the immune system. It's really not predictable as to <laughs> how long your benefit will last and how much immune treatment you'll need. The adverse events were very similar between placebo and Fgartigamod, and in the open label Fgartigamod, there's no placebo comparator arm, uh, of course, and then remained fairly stable. Nasopharyngitis uh, was uh, frequent uh, and upper respiratory tract infection and urinary tract infection were both a little more prevalent in uh, drug than in placebo arm. Headache uh, was in placebo and drug arm, but uh, still present in open label. So these are the side effects. It was generally a very well-tolerated therapy. So then um, this was all IV um, administration. There was another study done comparing subcutaneous administration of Fgartigamod and this showed non-inferiority on the primary endpoint of, uh, they measured the percent change from baseline and total IgG levels at day 29, and they were comparable with IV and sub-Q treatments. And this was consistent with those uh, who had detectable acetylcholine receptor antibodies in dropping, and the endpoints were about the same uh, benefit with sub-Q and minimal symptom expression, which is zero to one on the ADLs uh, was achieved in 37% of patients after one treatment cycle. So really, uh, there is now an application to get Fgartigamod subcutaneously, which would be easier for patients. Another drug, rosanoluxizumab, is an FC receptor inhibitor. Uh, it is under priority review. 
The decision on uh, whether it will be available will be made this year by the FDA. Uh, and this is generalized MG patients who are acetylcholine receptor antibody positive. This is a monoclonal antibody that uh, also blocks the FC receptor. It is given by 7 or 10 milligram per kilogram sub-Q infusion weekly in the phase 3 study. It can cause headache and infusion site reactions. The phase 3 study studied both doses versus placebo, uh, one-to-one, placebo, 7 or 10 milligram per kilogram. And the primary was the change in the uh, quantitative myasthenia gravis score from baseline to day 43 of treatment. And the secondaries was the change in MDL, ADL, and myasthenia gravis composite. The uh, inclusion-exclusion criteria are shown above. And here, if you look at the total IgG level, you can see with both 7 and 10 milligram per kilogram subcutaneous doses that the levels were dropping in the first week and continued down a little bit to uh, day 29 and then started up. And the acetylcholine receptor antibodies dropped also in the first week and then stayed down and then started to come up after the treatment uh, was stopped and in the observation period. There were uh, infusions uh, given uh, weekly for six weeks. The open-label extension study was open to those who completed the phase three study, and um, there were two doses, dosing regimens uh, considered, the 7 and 10, and they were looking at those who had treatment-related AEs and the percentage of those with treatment-related as adverse events leading to withdrawal. This will be completed in October of this year. So, I've now reviewed an array of older, newer, and emerging therapeutic options. These provide new opportunities to identify what may be uh, appropriate for individuals, for individual treatment plans, and uh, the choices ideally will be informed by patient input on their real-world needs and preferences. And now we're going to move to Ms. Clark, who's going to talk to us about optimizing patient-centric care with collaboration between clinicians and patients. Thank you. So we're going to talk about goals of treatment uh, per the international consensus guidance of management of myasthenia gravis. The Myasthenia Gravis Foundation America Task Force uh, has post-intervention status classifications, meaning that there is a minimal manifestation status or better. This means there are no symptoms or functional limitations due to myasthenia gravis, but there may be some muscle weakness upon examination. Uh, The treatment-related adverse events are absent or mild, and the patient is uh, potentially in remission, which is defined as no signs or symptoms of myasthenia gravis. They can potentially have weakness of their eyelid closure, which is acceptable, but no weakness of other muscles on careful examination by their uh, practitioner. 
So when we look at patients' assessments of their own treatment and quality of life, the Myasthenia Gravis News conducted a survey and they had 743 respondents, 90% of which had Myasthenia Gravis. And among those respondents with Myasthenia Gravis, 71% were either extremely or somewhat satisfied with their treatment plan. What was surprising was that only 44% were very or somewhat satisfied with their quality of life. This is very telling, and it's uh, important as we look at mechanisms to determine the efficacy of the treatment and how the patient perceives how their therapy is working for them. Considering shared decision-making. Seeking out and encouraging patient participation. Helping the patient explore and compare treatment options. Assessing individual patient values and preferences. Reaching a decision with that patient and evaluating the patient's decision with them. And as we look at that, we also look at the four C's of patient-centered care, which include cultural competence, care, collaboration, and communication. Uh, it's really important that we are considering the patient's own goals for their health, their comfort level with the process, many of them naive to the process, uh, their individual capabilities, barriers they may have to adherence, changes from their baseline, be they good or bad, and the follow-up needs that the patient will, will uh, be expected to do either independently or with support of their family or caregiver. So now we're going to hear from Kate again uh, about her experiences with myasthenia gravis management and um, how her needs and preferences were taken into consideration. I think it's very important for patients to be involved in their treatment decision-making. That is something that was very important to me transitioning from being a pediatric patient where I had a bit less say as a minor in my treatment options and then coming of age and becoming an adult patient, I felt understood, I felt seen, and I felt very empowered when I had providers who cared about the side effects of treatments, who cared about what my concerns were about whether it's short-term or long-term considerations, um, and who also wanted to hear from me what my goals were beyond just, um, are you going to be managed or not? Or do we wanna try and get you to remission or not? Um, when they could hear what some of my goals were, which were um, having a career, having a family, being able to allow those um, aspirations within reason to inform the treatment plan um, really made dealing with MG a lot easier because it was an area where I felt like I did have some autonomy and some control when you're, um, when you're living with a chronic disease like MG, there's a lot that's outside of your control. So being afforded those small moments of consideration um, actually, I think, make a really big impact on um, patient quality of life. Okay. I think a great example of this with my most recent provider was after my, my oldest was born, I went to him with concerns about the treatment I was on because of the length of time that it took to receive the infusion I was receiving and the side effects that I was having. As a new mom, it was causing me a lot of anxiety, um, and I started having 
like anxiety attacks before the nurse would come to my house because I was feeling so overwhelmed with trying to take care of my daughter during an eight hour infusion. And I asked if there were any other applications that, you know, were pregnancy safe or breastfeeding safe um, because I knew I wanted to have one more kid. I didn't want to start on another treatment that would then close that door for me. Um, and he really listened to what my concerns were um, about the side effects, about the length of time, about the lack of flexibility that I had in needing to have a nurse in the home and be tied to the nursing schedule. One of the hardest things about having a chronic illness is feeling like you've lost a sense of your identity. And I think that can be very easy to um, just lose yourself in those relationships with the people that you're supposed to be having that high level of trust with, including your providers. So I think if you can humanize those interactions a little bit by understanding what your patient's goals are, what their motivations are, and allowing them to have some insight into the decision-making process, um, even if it's just taking an extra five minutes to explain why a treatment that they were interested in, they're not a candidate for, rather than just shutting it down saying no, will allow them to um, just maintain a sense of humanity that often can get lost when you're dealing with like the larger medical complex. Now we're going to move to a discussion of practical considerations in implementing myasthenia gravis treatment plans. As Dr. Brill alluded when she was talking about the ADAPT study, the Myasthenia Gravis Foundation of America clinical classifications have five different classes, zero if you count remission, and one through four include um, ocular weakness that goes from any ocular weakness to mild to moderate to severe. And there may or may not be limb or axial muscle involvement or there may or may not be oral pharyngeal or respiratory muscle involvement based on the classification. Um, as also mentioned earlier, class five, um, the patient is intubated. Uh, it may be with or without mechanical ventilation, and they may or may not require a feeding tube with or without intubation. Other mechanisms to assess disease status in myasthenia gravis include the myasthenia gravis impairment index, the quantitative myasthenia gravis scale, the myasthenia gravis composite, and on the next slide, we'll talk about a few others. But I think the important thing to note here is that with these scales, they're a combination of both objective validated assessment tools where the physician or the clinician that is managing the care of the patient is able to physically or objectively assess that patient or the patient themselves is providing subjective data on um, their disease uh, journey at the time. In both controlled sites of care, uh, hospital infusion suites, ambulatory infusion suites, and home, these validated assessment tools are used because they help drive 
the need for subsequent cycles of therapy. So again, we have both objective and subjective. Subjective in the home being the most common, being the MGADL scale used most commonly, but there is also the composite scale, the quality of life 15, uh, the EG5D scale, which is more of a generic quality of life scale. And then there's the PASS score, which is a single question, um, yes or no score that is also used in myasthenia gravis. So speaking of practical considerations of use, we look at individualizing the timeline regarding frequency of treatment cycles, the degree of post-infusion monitoring required for the patient, and then the longer-term assessment of treatment efficacy, which includes monitoring for and management of adverse events of treatment. Reviewing the plan of infusion therapy treatment, we look at venous access. Um, does the patient have appropriate venous access? Perhaps subcutaneous therapy is more appropriate, particularly when those therapy modalities are available. Uh, the route that the medication will be administered. Has the patient had history with biologics in the past that would warrant premedication? What product is being used? Are there payer considerations for reimbursement? Does the clinician know how to infuse the therapy at the appropriate rate? Uh, what is the dose and volume? Do we have adequate anaphylaxis management considerations? And is there pain management uh, taken into consideration for venous access as appropriate? Patient safety and the site consideration includes, again, anaphylaxis management, uh, infusion-related reaction management for hypersensitivities, and ensuring that all clinicians are aware of their organizational policies. When looking at site of care, this again being appropriate as we look at the movement of these infusion therapies into home to ensure that the geography for the infusion is appropriate, that the 911 or emergent response is available for that patient's area, that they have appropriate caregiver support, particularly if receiving diphenhydramine, which is uh, could be very sedative, um, or perhaps they have mobility issues. Do they again have a history with reaction to biologics, their venous access history, any risks associated with first dosing based on the therapy that's being uh, initiated, such as uh, rituximab? And do we have any adherence considerations if the patient is either administering the therapy independently and or responsible for being present for those infusions and showing up at the scheduled time? And just very briefly here from a, a good to know clinician perspective, when administering any biologic, uh, it's important to have baseline vital signs taken, um, understanding what the product expectations are uh, for the monitoring throughout the course of the infusion, uh, could be every 15 minutes or with titration changes. And then if there are any post-infusion monitoring recommendations after the completion of the infusion. And then we'll look at patient uh, education, regardless of the site of care, ensuring that the patient understands uh, the warnings and precautions associated with the product. Um, is hydration appropriate, such as uh, it is with immunoglobulin therapy? If they're infusing in the home, we need to ensure that they understand how to store both the medication, the supplies, and their sharps container. And most importantly, do they know who to call and when to call them? Calling 911, calling their pharmacy, and calling their prescriber. 
As with any product uh, that is on the market, we want to ensure that we're reporting any adverse drug reactions following both organizational policy and the expectation of the FDA. Every package insert includes a mechanism for reporting either through the manufacturer or through um, the MedWatch uh, website or through the 1-800-FDA-1088 phone number when these reactions occur. And it's vitally important to support quality improvement initiatives and post-marketing data collection. Uh, they're going to be looking for the rate of infusion as it occurred, the time, the dose that was being administered, the lot and the expiration, the total amount that was administered prior to the reaction, and if there were multiple vials and multiple lots administered. I'm going to turn this back over to Dr. Brill, who is going to summarize what we've covered today. And um, I'll give it over to you, Dr. Brill. Thank you. So what we've talked about are the new and emerging treatments for myasthenia gravis and how they offer opportunities uh, to better meet our patients' treatment needs. We've uh, addressed patient priorities and perspectives and understand they're a crucial factor in how we make treatment decisions. Our treatment plans have to be readdressed on an ongoing basis to adapt to individual treatment response. So one size does not fit all. So that ends our discussion for today. I want to thank my colleagues, Professor Saka and Ms. Clark for their insights. We hope you found this activity informative and useful to your practice. And thank you very much for participating. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash EZC 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Argenex U.S. Incorporated.